Hey, we're going to be back in Philippians 1 today. They're almost there. It's a very exciting morning. They got all excited. Okay, so uh, Eric, uh, who some of you might know, uh, challenged through a challenge out. He said, I think that we adults should do that too. I think that we should learn to see the story of Jesus in the world around us and to tell people about it. And you know what? He's not wrong. It's pretty awesome. Uh, the other day, I'm a pastor, so it happens to me naturally, but it happened before I was a pastor. Uh, Hezekiah was making bread, and I got to help him. And so we talked about yeast. And I was like, hey, yeast, Jesus says yeast is like, uh, like this kingdom thing, you know? And so we kind of talked about yeast and how it's uh, just a little bit gets inside and then when that little bit gets inside how it grows and transforms and we talked about how that's how Jesus works right you a little bit of him gets inside and it grows and transforms us because God has made everything in the world to display his glory which is pretty awesome from sunrises to the moon at night the stars in the sky your twinkling eyes Jesus everywhere amen all right cool sorry I, I decided to be silly there for a minute um Something to announce quickly before we get into the sermon. A lot of you know this, um, but uh, Dan Parker went to be with the Lord this week on, uh, on Wednesday or Thursday? Wednesday, thank you. It got to be a blur after that for some reason. Um, but uh, thank you. Many of you prayed. You knew that Dan uh, took a spill a week ago, two weeks ago today, and hit his head on the pavement really hard, um, and he just wasn't able to recover and so he went to be with the Lord. We're praying for Dawn and uh, her family. Um, he has, uh, they have a daughter, Sarah, and uh, son-in-law, Charlie, and then two wonderful grandkids. So we could be praying for them. And uh, the service is going to be on November 11th at 2 p.m., if memory serves me correctly. We'll get more information out about that. Um, I know a lot of you have asked how you can help. Um, right now, the answer is just pray, you know, be encouraging, be that warm hug when it's needed, and then as it becomes clear what help is needed, we'll let you know. And I love that we live in a church family, that we have a church family, that the first thing that happens is, how can we help? How can we serve? How can we make life better uh, for those who are in our midst who are hurting? So just a wonderful thing. Thank you for that expression of love. I know that uh, Dawn and family appreciates that, and we'll let you know as, uh, as need becomes more clear. So thank you very much for that. All right, well, what if we have a word of prayer before we get into the message today? Uh, Father, thank you. Thank you for the grace that is in Christ Jesus, that those who put their faith in him have everlasting life. Thank you that that is such a clear and resounding message because we're so prone, Father, to want to earn it, to want to have to keep it. But the truth is, Father, you say that anyone who believes in me has everlasting life. I just thank you for that. I thank you, God, for the comfort of knowing that Dan is with you in heaven. As one friend said, uh, who knows Dan, said, now Dan knows. And Dan was always on a quest for knowledge and understanding and clarity about you and your plan of salvation. And now Dan knows. And that's just delightful. Father, we pray for comfort. We pray for peace. We pray for light. We pray for joy and endurance. And we pray that grief would be good in the Parker household and the extended family this week and these coming weeks. We ask, Father, that we would have words of encouragement, warm memories to share, and that love would be almost tangible in our midst as we walk through uh, just losing Dan, but also having this hope in Christ so that we don't grieve like the world. Father, I pray that you would be with us in our time of learning as well. Father, you've given uh, me a, a message to, to share, a calling in this message to share. I pray, Father, that that would be clear 
Uh, Father, we know that you work in our lives through the power of your Holy Spirit. We know that you've caused your word to be active and living as we uh, sort of consume it in the presence of you through your spirit working in us. And so we pray, God, that your word would be fruitful in our lives today. Uh, Father, we pray that you would continue to shape this church to be a church that hungers and thirsts for your righteousness so that we might be satisfied in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're just uh, honing in on one verse today. That's Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. And uh, as we get into that, I just want to share, I was talking with somebody this week. Uh-oh. Okay, now we're on. I'm not advanced. There we go. I must have a hidden slide there or something. Um, so as we talk through Philippians, uh, some of you have noticed, hey, this is a little different. Um, we're talking through some themes in Philippians. We're not going through Philippians verse by verse. Verse by verse is a wonderful way of teaching the Bible, and it builds biblical IQ and understanding of what the word is overall. Uh, but there's another way of understanding the word too, and that's looking at the themes of the Bible. So we're looking at Philippians thematically, and this is valuable too. So uh, the, the biblical theology helps us understand that book or that situation. And thematic theology kind of helps us create a, a structure in our mind for what life is like in the Lord, uh, what it is to know Him. And so, for instance, who is God is a big theme in the Bible, right? And, and we learn more about who the Lord is and His character in every passage that we read. We just sort of build this overall theme to see what the Father is like, to understand the Son, to understand the Holy Spirit, to understand that all three of these persons are in one God and they're dynamically involved in our lives and we, we build this understanding over time. And so as we get into Philippians in this way, we're talking through themes of Philippians. So it might feel a little bit weird. Uh, think of it like this. We're finding truth in Philippians and that is like a, a springboard launching into biblical themes that are not just in Philippians but are in the rest of the Bible as well. Does that make sense? Okay, very good, very good. Just don't want anybody to be lost. Uh, so Philippians 1.1 says this. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and the deacons. Uh, you'll notice that I chose the New King James Version for this instead of our standard Christian standard version, and it's because I wanted to talk about one specific concept in this, and that is this, this theme right here, this idea of bond servants and how it connects to gratitude and thanksgiving and generosity. And so we're going to talk about that. Uh, specifically, we're going to talk about having a generous opportunity from God, having a generous opportunity from God. Now, many people have observed how generous God the Father is, and they have seen that part of that generosity working in us is it produces generosity within us in return for what we have received. It's because as we see God and what, we, what he does, we have this mimetic pattern happening. Now, mimetic means we mimic what we see our father doing. Have you ever held a baby before, a really young baby? One of the early things of development in a baby's life is they mirror or they mimic what you are doing. Yeah, and so if you go to the baby, you go, ah, then the baby likes, ah, and if you stick your tongue out, the baby goes, mm, and then he usually goes, Pfft. We don't know why. You're not doing that, right? It's just they're learning what their body does, and as they see you do things, they're also going to do things. And then some of you know the beauty and the pain of the fact that your children then mimic you 
as you live, right? And so sometimes you see wonderful moments in life and you're like, they're getting it. And like your love and your generosity and your care are coming out. And then occasionally something they say, sometimes they say something that you've said that you didn't mean for anybody else to hear, like your opinion about the president, right? In the way that you say it at home. And like then, then you're, oh, you don't talk about that around other people, little Jane, right? And so children, they mimic us. In the same way, we mimic our heavenly father. Uh, C.T. Studd, who was a, a, a British missionary uh, to inland Africa, he says, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great to make for him. C.T. Studd understood it. Uh, if any of you have studied the life of C.T. Studd, C.T. Studd was a stud. He was like a star cricket player in Britain. I mean, like the top. He was the pinnacle cricket player. Uh, his family was wealthy and he was extremely well connected. There was a good chance that he was the kind of guy that could be prime minister someday in England. And then he put his faith in Christ and he recognized what Christ did for him and it transformed his whole life. And he decided to spend his life giving his life to others and giving the truth of Jesus to others because that's what Jesus did for him. And so his life is a demonstration of the generous opportunity that Christ gives us, which is to live our lives generously for God the Father, just like Jesus did. Now, as we talk about generosity, as we talk about giving, we need to understand how big this concept is to God. So let's took, look at four important biblical themes and how often they're repeated in the Bible. Uh, first of all, believe. Believing is really important, right? That's how we have faith. That's how we have everlasting life is to believe. And so believing, vital, foundational principle. It's talked about 272 times in the Bible. The command to believe is given 272 times in the Bible. How about praying? Is praying important? Praying's pretty vital, right? Like that's, that's our source of connection with God in an ongoing way, and, it, and it's a part of God working in our lives. James says you have not because you ask not, right? Praying is pretty important. So that's talked about or commanded 371 times in the Bible. How about to love? Is love a big deal to God? Love is a huge deal to God. In fact, in 1 John, it says that God is love. It even says that if anyone claims to know God but has not love for the brethren, they do not know God. Now, that's not talking about salvation. That's talking about they have no deep relationship with God, right? And so love is vital, right? In fact, God commands us to love over and over again. But then this command to give, 2,162 times. You'll notice that if you add the others up, it's not there. Like that one is more than the others combined. Now, there's a little bit of a logical fallacy here. Just because it talks about something more doesn't make it that much more important proportionally. But we can see that when God talks about something that much, it probably matters to him. So here's the big idea for this week. God is calling you to learn to be generous like Jesus. God is calling you to learn to be generous like Jesus. Think about this. Jesus' life is so influential because he gave, right? Jesus' life is so influential because he gave. In fact, there have been lots of incredibly intelligent people who have massive followings spiritually and religiously, right? But there's no one like Jesus. What's the difference between those people and Jesus? I mean, aside from that, Jesus is God, right? So we'll get that one out of the way. Okay, we passed Theology 101 test. It's that Jesus gave. Jesus gave his whole life for us. And his fame, his influence, if you will, is because he gave. In fact, in Philippians 2, we're going to start talking about this in a couple weeks. Uh, it says that 
Jesus' gift, his obedience, his giving his life, is the reason that his name is exalted above every other name. So in a way, Jesus is the preeminent figure of all creation because he gave, because he's the ultimate giver, giving himself so that those who believe might have everlasting life. So God is calling you to learn to be generous like Jesus. Okay, so in this passage, we see that Paul cultivated generosity in himself. I guess we could even say Jesus cultivated generosity in Paul, but Paul certainly pursued generosity as a discipline. And Timothy, who is one of his most valuable persons, right? His MVPs. Uh, every church has some MVPs, some people who are really putting it in and making a difference, and Timothy was one of those. And, and Paul raised up Timothy. He loved Timothy. They were so close that Paul called Timothy his son in the faith. They were that close. Even though they weren't related by blood, Paul was saying, I am mentoring you. I am leading you. I'm discipling you so that you can be like me. And so Paul cultivated that generosity in himself, and he did in Timothy too. We see this in the text. It says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ who are in Philippi. So let's talk about this concept of bondservants. Some of your translations may, may say slaves, may say slaves. Now, when we think of slavery, what do we think about in the U.S.? It's like not good. It's unjust, right? It's a human owning another human and consuming that other human's life for their own benefit. Now, were there good slave owners? Sure, but the concept was still broken, right? Because it was me purchasing you. I own you. I am in control, and you have no choice in the matter. It's an unjust situation. Now, does the Bible have some rules about slavery in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament? Absolutely. Does that mean that the Bible is saying that slavery, as we've seen it around the world, is acceptable to God? That God is a big fan of people selling their countrymen or people from the tribes next door, and then other people use No, not really at all, right? It's just that God wants there to be justice in the midst of all human dealings, and so he provides uh, guidance for how to make things work right, even when they're not working best. It also talks about murder in the Bible. It even talks about accidental murder. It's not that God's a big fan of accidental murder, right? He's not like accidental death, but he makes provisions in that so that there can be justice in society around the world. So when we're talking about slavery in this way, we're not talking about it in the same way. In fact, Paul doesn't even use the word slave. He uses the word bondservant. In the Greek, it's doulos, right? D-O-U-L-O-S in, in, in English letters. That's not, that's not what it is in the Greek letters. And it's this concept of Paul being set free by God but then Paul freely committing himself to serve the Lord in everything. So Paul recognized that Jesus did for him what he could never do for himself. In fact, Paul says that his redemption is pretty phenomenal because Christ died to save sinners, and he says, I was the chief of sinners. He isn't necessarily saying that he was the worst sinner. He was saying, though, that he was a leader of sinners, that he led other people to sin. Do you remember in the story of Paul's salvation in the book of Acts, uh, Paul is riding to Damascus, and he's like 007, the Jewish version, right? And, uh, and he's sent, and he has the ability to destroy churches, uh, even to the point, if he has to, of killing Christians for their heresy, their rebellion against the Jewish faith because they believed in Jesus the Messiah. So Paul was not a nice dude, right? Like when you're, when you're that religiously zealous that you think that what you should do is kill other people to make the world a better place, you may have a problem at that point in time, right? So Paul's, Paul's a little messed up inside. Uh, his, his faith has gotten a little twisted. 
And he's on this journey, and all of a sudden, he sees a bright light from heaven. In fact, it's so bright that it's blinding. And Paul calls out, who are you, Lord? Like, what in the world is going on? And then Jesus speaks to Paul, and he says, well, Paul was called Saul then. Anyways, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul's confused. What do you mean? And then Jesus reveals himself to Saul, that he is the Messiah. And Jesus tells him that he needs to go and wait in Damascus because he will take care of him. So Saul goes to a house in Damascus. He's blind. He's got two Jewish companions who are with him. He sends them away because he doesn't know what's happening now and he can't do what he said he was going to do. So they return to Jerusalem. He's there. And then God says word to one of his faithful followers who also lived in Damascus to go and pray for Saul, the murdering persecutor, that Jesus would heal him. Can you imagine being that Christian, by the way? Okay, so there's a man hunting you down. He will kill you if necessary, if you're not willing to give up Jesus, and you should show up at his house. This seemed like a good idea to you. Like, no, right? You're just like, can you see the suckling pig with the apple, like going right into Paul's uh, house there? Yeah, like this is just like, wow, you want me to do this? But uh, this man uh, obeys, and he goes and he prays for Saul, and the scales are removed from Saul's eyes, and he puts his faith in Jesus, and then over time, he grows to become the Apostle Paul. And think about all of the revelation that we have in God's Word about who Paul, or who, who the Lord is, about justification by faith alone, about how we're included in God's plan as Gentiles, people who were not his people before, about what's waiting for us, uh, what's coming in the future, all sorts of revelation from Paul. And so Paul was in this privileged position throughout all of history, and he refers to his relationship with God as different because he's so grateful for what God has done that he gives himself back to the Lord. And he says, Lord, not my will be done in my life, but your will. And so the mark of a bondservant was a deep love for the one that he or she was tying himself to and a deep sense of self-sacrifice and commitment so that I'm committed to the person who I'm bonding myself to and I'm putting their good above my own even to the detriment of myself. And so that's what Paul said he was going to do for the Lord. Now, did Paul do that for the Lord? Absolutely. Elsewhere, he talked about the difficult life that he had. He made this list of things that went wrong. He's like, I've been shipwrecked for Jesus. I've been boiled in oil for Jesus. I've been stoned and left for dead twice for Jesus, right? He talks about all of the things that he has gone through for Christ. All of those things cost him in his life. In fact, his pursuit of Jesus, you could say, cost him everything in a way, but he gave it willingly because he saw the generosity of Christ towards him and was grateful for that love and then reciprocated or mirrored that generosity. But Paul didn't just do that for himself. He also trained Timothy in that way, right? He says, Paul and Timothy, we are both bondservants of Jesus. It's a generosity towards God that's unlike any other generosity that's on the face of the earth. It's a completely self-giving generosity, giving to one's own detriment, but even doing that joyfully and out of love. Now, Paul is setting this example for us because he wants us to grow in this way too. I don't think Paul wasted words. Paul, over and over again, introduces himself as a doulos of Jesus, as somebody who is serving Jesus with everything. And he says things like, follow me as I follow Christ. And so he's saying, my life is an example. And so he's laying down this path before us and inviting us into that sort of generous giving towards God because God has given 
to us. And that's a really big concept. And as you think about that, some of us are like, that sounds amazing. But a lot of us are adult enough to go, that sounds really hard, right? And you know what? It would be, except this is something that God wants to cultivate in you. This isn't something that you're doing on your own. It's something that the Holy Spirit wants to produce in you. The Holy Spirit wants to produce in you this serving, loving generosity. And so as you seek him out, as you submit to him, he will empower you to be generous in this way, just like he empowered Paul to be generous in this way. I don't think anybody in their right mind gets almost murdered by a whole town of people for their faith and then gets up and says, well, that was interesting. Let's go in and do it again right? Like, that's a little bit odd. What drives someone to do that? I think that you don't do that without the Holy Spirit. I I think that's an exceptional form of following Jesus, and that form of following Jesus only happens when the Holy Spirit's power is working inside of you. So as you're committing to this journey of generosity, don't do it on your own. Invite the Holy Spirit into your life to produce this generosity to you, to lead you in this generosity. He will guide you. He will give you the opportunities that he's calling you to give. There's a a guy named Ignatius. It's probably not the Ignatius that you're familiar with if you grew up in the Catholic Church. Way older than that, right? So he was in the second century AD, and he was a church leader. And he, reflecting on the generosity that we're supposed to have, he says that every one of us should walk around with our hands on our money bags. And this sounds like something that you need to do if you're in downtown Seattle, right? Hand on my wallet, right? But that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is so that we would be prayerfully considering who God would be telling us to share what he has given us with. In other words, he's saying we do need to be generous, but we need to be generously directed by the Lord in how we are generous. The Holy Spirit needs to lead us in our generosity. Uh, And so that's something that you should be pursuing, or God wants you to pursue, as you're pursuing generosity. So let's talk about this generosity a little bit. This generosity is a result of love. This generosity is a result of love. You remember last week we talked about the prayer in Philippians 1 that God, or that Paul prayed that God would cause love to abound more and more to the Philippian church so that they would have this uh, discernment and this demonstration of God's will in their lives? Well, this will leads them towards generosity. And so it's the result of love. In fact, it's the result of God's love for us first. In John 3.16, it says this, For God loved the world in this way. He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. And I want to pause and reflect on this for a minute. If you're here today and you're new to faith, or maybe you haven't put your faith in Jesus yet, I just want to pause and say this verse is possibly the most vital verse in this whole sermon for you for you to reflect on how much God loves you, how much God cares for you, that he would give his son for you, is the step that I want you to take in cultivating generosity this week. Because our generosity grows as we understand and experience God's love. In fact, the limits of our generosity are the limits of our understanding about God's love. I want to say that again. The limits on our personal generosity are the limits on our understanding of God's love. We'll unpack that more later as the sermon goes on. But today, if you're new in the faith, just reflect as much as you can in your life. Think about how much God loves you. When you wake up in the morning, I 
want you to thank God for his deep love for you, that he would give his son for you. I want you to thank God that his eye is on you. He's looking towards you constantly. He's adopted you into his family as his own child. He's blessed you with every spiritual blessing through this faith that you have. God loves you in this way that he gave his son for you, and he would do it over and over and over again if he had to. He doesn't have to because Jesus' sacrifice was perfect once for all sin, right? But he would He would do it a thousand times just for you because he loves you that much. If you don't have faith in Jesus, I want you to understand this too, that long before you were born, God had you in his mind. He cared about you in his heart. He saw you through all history and he cared about you enough to say, hey, I want you to be with me for eternity. And what it's gonna cost is someone's life. It's supposed to be your life but I'm willing to pay that myself. If you will put your faith in Jesus, then you will have everlasting life with God. He will invest himself in your life. He will enter into your life in a dynamic way that only he can. And that step to receiving that is to just believe in Jesus. Jesus' life and death and resurrection is so historically clear that even non-believing historians recognize it. They embrace the fact that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is abundantly clear in all history. His existence is clearer than Shakespeare's existence. His his existence has more evidence than most of the Greek wars. His existence is unarguably a fact. But you know what's wild? Is that lots of people look at this and they go, that is so weird that there's this one guy about 2,000 years ago, he lived, he claimed to be the son of God. He told everybody that if, he, if they believe in him, he has everlasting life. He said that he was gonna die for them so that they could have that everlasting life. And he said he would prove it because he was gonna be raised from the dead. And then he did it. That's so weird, isn't it? And then they like close the book and they walk away and they go, huh, I wonder why. Man, I gotta tell you why. It's because God loves you and he wants you to have faith in him so that you can have everlasting life. He created you to know him. You were made in his image and there's a place in you genetically and spiritually that belongs in relationship with God. And the way to have that is by putting your faith in Jesus. And so this verse is vitally important because it has the key to everlasting life for you. Maybe today is the day that you put your faith in Jesus. Maybe today is the day that you go, I've heard about this God guy. I've heard about this Jesus guy. My weird aunt prays for me and I don't know why, but maybe today is why. Maybe today is the day that you say, Lord, I believe and I want to know you and I want to have everlasting life. And that means today is the day that God grabs you up and he says, and I love you and I'm giving you everlasting life and I will never leave you or forsake you. Is today that day for you? It's a very, very beautiful day if it is. So back to the main point of this for the rest of us. This generosity that God is increasing in us is started by his love. He loved you so much that he gave his son. And that love is going to overtake your life. In fact, when you step into heaven, that love is going to be obviously the defining factor of your life. In fact, it says in the word that you can't even imagine what God has prepared for you in glory, that the best imagination you have about heaven falls so far short, falls so far short. Uh, We took our kids to Disneyland one year, 
Um, and on the way back, we were driving around downtown Long Beach because it was a busy Sunday, and we drove by the mini golf place, and our older son goes, look, Disneyland. And I was like, nobody, that's mini golf in Ocean Park. And it's like moldy and rusty and dingy. And I thought to myself, we could have saved many hundreds of dollars. <laughs> we really could. Just put those ears on him, go down there, go to Disneyland for a couple hours, get some ice cream. It could have been amazing, right? But our imaginations of heaven are the same way, right? Like we're looking at heaven, we're like, look, heaven. And God's like, you got no idea, right? But thankfully, he's not like, I could have saved so much Jesus, right? Like he would gladly and lavishly spend Jesus on us to give us the beauty of heaven, right? And so we anticipate greater generosity from the Lord than we have experienced so far. And so we give all the more to the point that we're hilarious givers because we're like, I don't know what's coming, but it's way better than I've got right now. So I'm not going to worry about what I have. I'm just going to follow the Lord. Amen. In 1 John 4.19, it says, We love because He first loved us. His love starts to ignite love inside of us. It's the catalyst of creating agape love in us. I've got a question for you. How do you spell love? J-E-S-U-S, good, I like that. That's a good alternative spelling that sounds like love. Yeah, I usually spell it L-O-V-E, right? Unless I'm writing in a different language. God spells love G-I-V-E. I love, so I G-I-V-E. Love is played out in giving. We can't love without giving. You can give without loving. Have you ever gotten a gift that has no love in it? Like, I don't even know if I want this, right? It just feels slimy. You're like, can I return this? Like, can I get a refund on this thing that you've given me? I don't really want this gift, right? It reminds me constantly of a lack of love. But when we, li- when we love someone, when we genuinely love someone, we give to them. And we give freely and we give abundantly the more and more we love. Paul understood this, so he calls himself the bondservant. But it bleeds through his life in other ways. Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ, but to go- die is gain. For me to live is to have opportunities to love like Jesus loves. And that's an awesome opportunity. Paul says, I'm willing to live so that I can spend my life on you and anybody else who will listen about Jesus. But he says, if I die, then I gain. I gain the permanence of that love that I've been knowing and seeking after all the more. Paul says, it's either love flowing out of me from God here or love being known in my life forevermore. He sees his, mar- his life as defined by his opportunities to give. Philippians 2.17, this is a beautiful, beautiful passage, and we're just going to talk about one part of it here. He says, but even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Now, you are all Levitical experts. You're all experts on God's law, right? You're, you just got out of that class and you got abundant note. Okay, all right, so we'll just cover it a little bit. Lots of sacrifices in Leviticus, right? Sacrifices on how to maintain the covenant relationship with God. Now, we're not under that system of sacrifice because Jesus was the one sacrifice once for all sin, and he accomplished the law. He completed the law, and so the law has been put away because it was just leading us to Jesus. Now we have Jesus, we don't need the law, and he has given us this awesome ministry of grace, amen? However, Paul uses an Old Testament law as an example of what he considers his life. So you've got the sacrifice for sin, we all know about that, And there's also like you give your firstborn of the flock and you dedicate your firstborn and there's grain offerings. There's like a wave offering, you know, which you do in the football game, right? You're like, "Ah." 
All right, we're all a little tired today. All right, not happening. Okay, so uh, the, the wave offering, which I don't really understand, so I'm joking about instead of explaining it. And then there's this thing called the drink offering. Now, a drink offering was a part of almost every other offering, but there was something different about it. The drink offering was only offered in the land of promise after God had led the Israelites to victory, meaning a drink offering was founded on the victory of God in overtaking the enemy. Now, has God been victorious over our enemies? He has. Amen. That's right. It says in Colossians that he defeated the powers and principalities arrayed against us. He defeated them and he disarmed them, right? So Jesus won and put on display all of the forces of heaven that were arrayed against us, all the spiritual forces of darkness, right? And so Jesus defeated them. So we are standing in Jesus' victory. And the drink offering was a a special offering of like peace and thanksgiving and love. Think about it like this. Uh, you're at home, and you have this wonderful ribeye steak or piece of tofu for the three of you that that's a thing for. So you've got this wonderful ribeye steak, right? And you've cooked it in the pan, and you, you've got like the butter and the herbs in there, and you take it out of the pan. You're like, what would finish this? And you see this beautiful bottle of red grape juice that you bought at Jack's for $30, right? You know that red grape juice, the special grape juice section there, right? And you take that in the hot pan, and you drizzle it into the hot pan. And what happens with that it sizzles and how does it smell oh it's amazing right you're like woo! like if i could have a candle of that that didn't give me cancer you know candle those scented candles anyways if i could have that i would light that very often right like that smells amazing and you take that broken sauce and you drizzle it over your steak as it's resting and it like leeches up the goodness of that and you just experience this extraness right and the drink offering is like that It's like an extra at the end of everything else. And it's just an expression of goodness and love towards God. And so Paul is saying, even if y'all don't respond to my life and message, my life is a drink offering. And your faith and my building of the faith is a sacrifice of love to God. So Paul sees his life as giving. That's a very important thing. Do you see your life as giving? See, often we live in this culture that is very materialistic, is very consumeristic, and our lives are consumed with getting. Our lives are consumed with getting. I must admit there are days that I'm on Amazon more than I'm in the Word. Christmas is coming, right? And so there's times that we're more focused on consuming, on what we can get that makes our life better than we are on what God has done for us and what He's calling us to do for others. So are you concerned with giving your life away the way Paul is? God wants to form that in you. Next, generosity transforms you, making you more like Jesus. It says in Titus 2.14 that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. The key here is that Jesus gave himself for us. That's the chief thing that Jesus did. He did so much more than that, but that's the biggest thing. Now, this matters because God wants to form Jesus in you. In fact, this is one of his great purposes in your life. It says in Romans 8, 29, that for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. If you put your faith in Jesus, then God has this major purpose and calling in your life, and that's to make you look like Jesus to others. He wants to put the goodness of Jesus on display in your life. 
Now, if the main thing that Jesus did in this life was to give himself up in obedience to the Father, if you're going to be like Jesus, what does that mean for you? If I'm going to be like Jesus, what does that mean for me? It means that I need to give myself up in obedience with the Father, to the Father, pardon me. Now, this doesn't mean that I'm not saved if I don't do this. It's just an important part of following Jesus. Now, this plays out in a lot of different ways. Let's talk about it a little bit. Some of you have people in your life that are irritating or aggravating. Some of you have people in your life, they need extra grace from you, extra favor for you, because they're not going to earn that favor, right? They're, they're maybe hard to love. They're prickly or slimy or slippery or all of these things at once, right? I don't know. They walk in the room and you go, oh, good, <laughs> right? You got that discipline inside, right? You got to remember that, that they're good, right? Well, this is an act of giving yourself like Jesus gave. It says in Romans that while we were still God's enemies, Christ died for us. And God considers this the perfect time. This is why Peter identifies the love of an enemy as one of the most Jesus-like things that we can do. And so maybe you have a sibling that's particularly difficult to get along with even after all of these decades. They're just not your favorite person. Well, they're one of God's favorite people, and maybe you're learning to love them generously like God loves them generously. Parents, do your children ever get under your skin a little bit, ever so slightly? Are there ever moments where you're glad that you can send them to their bedroom so you can go to your bedroom and say the things into your pillow that they're saying into their pillow, just to vice versa, right? Never ever happened some animosity there? Well, in that moment, you can love them like God loves them, which means that you speak the truth with grace. You talk about what's wrong with compassion and love, and you lead them to the Holy Spirit instead of the holy cow moment, right? Like, I can't believe I made mom that mad. <laughs> you know, that's not what you want your kids thinking. Instead, isn't it better when they fail that they think, I can't believe God loves me this much, that he would still be committed to me, and I can't believe my parents love me this much, that they would be committed to me. This is that part of giving oneself over to God, is obediently loving people like he loves people. We could talk about the same thing in marriage, couldn't we? But I think you can figure that one out because we've talked about it quite a bit in the past. And so this self-giving love transforms us to be more and more like Jesus. Next, we need to understand that generosity is the remedy for consumerism. Consumerism embraces this. The stuff I get can make my life better. And if I want a better life, then I need to get more stuff, right? And we've all fallen prey to this before. Life is really hard right now, but that thing that I just saw the commercial for, that will fix it. Life is going really difficultly right now. I'm in this project. I don't know how I'm going to solve it, but I'm going to go to the hardware store. I'm going to find the right thing. And you know what? It works, doesn't it? I mean, buying stuff is like a slot machine, but you get what you want every time. And it seems to work for a moment. But the reality is, is it's just getting you through this problem right now. And you're going to need to do this again. So the reality is, is it works a little bit, but it doesn't really work all the way. And it just solves your little problems until you can't solve the biggest problem, which is death. The only thing that you can put in your life that solves death is Jesus. And the funny thing about that is when you have Jesus, he can also solve your consumeristic tendencies. He can get you off that treadmill. He can get you out of that race. It says in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters since either he will hate one or love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So the Bible is very clear. Money 
can be a master to you. Money can be an idol to you, to put it in biblical terms. Money can be your God. Some people serve money a lot. It's what they seek after the most. Everything's good when there's money, and nothing's good when there's not. You know, uh, I think it was Warren Buffett. Somebody asked him once, once, how much is enough? And he said something like, just another billion. I just need another billion, then I'll be okay. How many billions does that guy have? He just needs a little bit more, right? I don't mean to disrespect Warren Buffett at all. We all have this inside. Just a little more and it'll be fine. Everybody always believes that just 10% more money will make their life better. But then when you get 10%, what do you need? Another 10% because there's always more notches on the belt loop of your bank account and your personal greed, right? And God says that's not good for you. Greed destroys you. And so Jesus is really clear. You can't serve two masters. You'll either serve God or you'll serve money. And generosity puts you in the place of serving God, not serving money. If you love people, you'll use money for God's purposes. If you love money, you'll use people for your purposes. You've known people like this, haven't you? Maybe some of you have looked in the mirror and found a person like this before. I hope that God is working in your heart so that we'd serve Him and not serve your money. Another concept about generosity that you need to understand as you undertake this path to generosity is that generosity will be rewarded in eternity. I've heard pastors say lots of really clever things about money and eternity. You know, one of the most common things is that you'll never see a U-Haul being towed behind a hearse, right? Going to your final destination, all that stuff you've been storing in your garage, it's not going with you. You can't take it with you. It was just for right here. But I, never, I also heard another pastor say, you can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. Jesus says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where no one can steal it, where rust doesn't break it down. Man, we know what that means, right? Where moths don't eat it up. Jesus says, store your treasures in heaven. Paul repeats this to Timothy. He says, hey, you got a lot of rich people in your church there in Ephesus, Timothy. We got some stuff to say to them. Tell them to use their money to do good. Everybody likes a pastor who talks about money a lot. I know that. Yeah. And so Paul didn't let Timothy off the hook. And he said, hey, specifically, go to the rich people. Tell them to use their money for good. Everybody likes it when somebody shows up and tells them how to use their money, right? Especially when they said, God said, right? That's a real, real important thing, right? But he says, those who are rich should be rich in good works, and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. Side note, you might not consider this true, but if you're hearing this and you're in this room, you're rich. And if you're not hearing this and in your room, you need to do some of these riches to get your hearing aids working right, okay? You have a refrigerator. You can buy gasoline fairly often. You take showers with hot, clean, running water or cold, clean, running water. You turn the faucet on and you brush your teeth. You just let that baby run, right? You're rich. You have so much of what you need in life. And so often we look at people who are more rich than we are and we think, if I just was there, then I could give more. God says, no, you have what you need and I will provide for you beyond that. So Paul says, tell them to be rich in good works and generous to those in need. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. 
Paul is not talking about this type of this side of eternity. He's talking about the eternal rewards that we have in heaven. He's tapping into truth of Jesus and he says, you want to store up your heavenly reward. You need a good foundation when you get to heaven. Don't get to heaven in your underpants only, right? That's the part of 1 Corinthians 3 where Paul says that the work in our life is going to be judged. And some people, when they go through that judgment of fire, which is for purification on the way into heaven, that people aren't going to have anything left. They're going to be like people who got through a fire. A few years ago, I had a friend who lives down in in Georgia, and he posted online one Sunday morning. I was seeing this on the way to church. This was like 10 years ago. He said, we had a fire in our house last night. Thank God we're all okay. I was outside in my BVDs and flip-flops, and the girls had their favorite teddy bear, and my wife was able to grab the laptop that our new business is on. We're going to be okay. He was grateful to be out front of his neighbor's house in his underwear. I'm alive. There's some people who are going to be like that in heaven. They're not going to mind their underpants. We probably won't mind them either, right? We're all going to be grateful to be there. But God says there's some rewards that are built up by doing good in this life. Jim Elliott put it this way. He says, he is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. To gain what he cannot lose. And when you give because you're loving the Lord. When you give out of obedience to Jesus, it goes ahead of you. It's a sacrifice that you receive more from. Next, God's generosity brings blessing. Now, I want to pause here. We just said that generosity cures consumerism, but the reality is is God's really clear that giving and being generous like he is is beneficial to you. Man, you remember that part in Ephesians 5 where it says, If somebody loves his wife, he's really loving himself. Nobody hates themselves, but they take care of themselves. In the same way, men, you need to love your wife, right? Because loving your wife is really good for you. And if you've ever been in a difficult season with your wife where the love has been pretty thin and then the love regrows, you go, this is much better for me to be loving my wife, right? Like, you might not say this out loud, but you think it in your head. You're like, life is way better now that I'm loving my wife like Jesus. Because when I was not, it was not good, right? And so loving your wife is a form of loving yourself, men. In the same way, giving to God is a way of ensuring blessing, which sounds kind of weird, and I just, it's hard for me to say that because I don't want to sound like one of those slimy guys on TV who's trying you to, to give, get you to give that seed of faith so that you can get your Mercedes. That's not what we're talking about here, but the principles are so clear about this in the Lord's Word. It says, give to Him, give to the one in need, and don't have a stingy heart when you give. And because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your works and in everything that you do. Okay, now this is from the law. This is for the Israelites, right? But I'm bringing this up because this principle continues through the whole Bible. Jesus repeats these principles. Paul repeats these principles. And specifically, I want to talk to the part of your hearts that give stingily. Have you ever had that moment inside where you're feeling that nudge to give? and you start preparing to give, and you're like dialing it back. You know, your initial thought is, I'm going to give this much. And you're like, no, 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 that's too much, Lord. Too much. And so you just start, you start dialing it back, and then eventually you give, and then later you're like, that was not a very good gift. We've all had that moment, right? Well, God says, don't be stingy. Be generous. In Philippians, it says that God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a hilarious giver. I can't believe how much I give to the Lord. He's just so good to me. I just can't wait to give more either. I must be cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs over here because it is so fun to give to God. Then you know what? It really is. 
2 Corinthians 9, 7, and 8 says that each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. You know what this means? If you're wrestling to give, if you're struggling to give, maybe it's okay to not. Because God does not enjoy it when you give reluctantly. And God does not enjoy it because you get, when you give because the pastor or somebody else is twisting your arm. Just hold back and say, Lord, I need you to produce some greater generosity in me because I'm reluctant and I'm feeling stingy and I feel like I might be giving out of compulsion. And I know that's wrong. And so I'm just going to ask for you to change my heart and I'm ready to give as you lead me. Help me, Lord, right? Proverbs 22, 9. A generous person will be blessed. He who shares his food, uh, for he who shares his food with the poor, I cut off a verse. All right, let's flip there in the Bible. We're going to have to do it the old school way. Old school still school. Proverbs 22. Oh, I'm just misreading it. I can't read English today, guys. A generous person will be blessed because he shares his food with the poor. There we go. Sorry about that. God's just saying, hey, I bless the people who are generous to the poor, right? Psalms 112, 5 and 6 says this. Good comes to those who lend money generously and conduct their business fairly. Such people will not be overcome by evil. It doesn't say that they won't deal with evil. They're going to deal with evil. They're just not going to be overcome by evil. Those who are righteous will be long remembered. Amen. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, and 8. And God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. Now, what word does Paul use there a lot? Every. In your translation, it might say all. Paul's saying, when you give, every grace will overflow to you in every way, always having everything you need because God wants you to be ready for more good work, a.k.a. giving. Right? That's what he's saying. He says, don't be afraid to give because God's going to give you more to give with. God is looking for faithful people to bless so that they can be more faithful with more. This is important for us to understand. God is looking for faithful people to bless, and that includes financially. But it's not just finances that we give, is it? In fact, more often, it's hard to give of ourselves, our time, our talents, the things that really matter to us. It's easy to realize that you can make more money. You also realize you can't make more time, right? And that's what makes that a more precious gift. Generosity draws you closer to God. Generosity draws you closer to God. In Matthew 6, 21, Jesus says this, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When you give to God, your heart gets closer to God. Where you give your attention, you get closer to that thing. You've probably had a moment in your life in the last year where you're talking to somebody you care about, and then you see them doing this. Oh, yeah, uh-huh. What's happening in that moment? Where's your heart? where your treasure is, right? When we give to God, we're setting that aside and we're saying, God, I'm giving to you and our attention grows on the Lord. When you give yourself into your faith more and more, you grow in more and more into your faith. Think about it this way. How much do you spend on your entertainment each year? I'm not saying that's wrong. I think it's really relatively indifferent. But when you compare that to how much you spend on your personal spiritual growth, what does that look like? Think about this. You're planning a weekend away. Can you find a retreat that's going to bless you spiritually? 
a place where you're going to find teaching and instruction that's going to restore you and renew you in the Lord, that might be better for you than that trip down the coast. That might be better for you than that camping trip. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just saying maybe, just maybe, if you invested in your relationship with the Lord, you would have more closeness to Him. Part of that is giving to Him. We give the Lord our hearts first, and then we give the Lord everything else. Give your hearts to the Lord. That's the first step in giving to God, is to give your heart to Him. That means to to give yourself to Him, the deepest parts of you, right? Not your thump, 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 pumper, but the inner part of you, of who you really are. Generosity proves the reality of your faith. Generosity proves the reality of your faith. We talked about how the fact that God spells love, G-I-V-E. Well, you know what? He seems to spell faith a little bit, that too, or at least it's part of the definition. In 2 Corinthians 9.13, the Corinthian church is wrestling with this big promise that they've made to help relieve the poor in Jerusalem. They've, they've pledged a big amount, and now they're like thinking about dialing it back. And Paul's like, don't do it! Don't do it, church! Don't dial it back! In fact, I want to tell you, church, Paul says, what's going to happen when you do what God called you to do in terms of your giving? He says, as a result of your ministry, the ministry of your giving, did you know that giving is a very special ministry of the Lord, by the way? They will give glory to God for your generosity to them and to, and to all believers will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Christ Jesus. Wow, that's a big deal. Paul's saying that when we give, we give generously, it proves that we understand the gospel and that we're obeying the gospel in a way. Now, this isn't a salvific issue. Giving doesn't make you saved. You can't write a check to your church and get saved, but it is an issue of God overtaking your heart and your heart trusting more and more in Jesus. I remember the first time I heard that. I was a Christian. I'd been a Christian for about 18 months. My girlfriend gave every week to her church when I went with her. I thought, she's nuts. I'm looking at those checks. She's a college student. Why should she be doing that? But I didn't say anything because, you know, you don't want to be rude to the person you love, right? We eventually got married, by the way, and she taught me a whole lot about this stuff because of her faith in the Lord. And then the pastor started to talk about money, and I remember thinking, yeah, who are you, buddy? I work hard for my money. What are you talking about? this?" And I was really upset. And then he started to talk about all these verses that talk about money, and I was like, holy cow, God really cares what I do with my money, and he really cares if I give, and he says that if I give, he's going to give back to me more and more. Maybe I should try this. That was the most transformational thing I've done in my whole life, I think. Just that step of giving transformed my faith, transformed my perspectives, transformed my trust. It proved my faith in a bigger way. Every time I went to church, my worship was more full because I had planned on giving and gave joyfully. The offering plate went by. It wasn't awkward. It was like inside. I was like, yes, Lord, thank you. Thank you for what you've given me. Use this gift for your glory, God. Strengthen your church, Lord. I just became so excited about church more and more because I was investing into God's plan of work on this earth, and it changed my life, and it'll change your life. Next, we need to understand that I'm lost just back up one. Thank you very much. You're not lost. All right, generosity brings exponential increase to you. Now, this makes me even more uncomfortable than saying that it brings blessings, right? Blessings are nice because we can say they're always spiritual, 
But the reality is that God talks about increase, massive increase in your life through giving. In Proverbs 11, it says this, give freely and become more wealthy. Be stingy and lose everything. This is just a general principle, but I've seen this play out, right? And then he says in the next verse, the generous will prosper. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. People curse those who hoard, with their, hoard their grain, but they bless the one who sells in the time of need. Generosity. I have what you need, and I will make sure that I can give to you in your time of need. If you search for good, you will find favor. But if you search for evil, it will find you. Now, that sounds like a nice principle, right? That's just free. But then the very next verse is back to money. Trust in your money, and you go down. Trusting in your money is the evil it's talking about. But the godly flourish like leaves in the spring. And what is it saying the godly do? They give. This was talking about. They give. The godly give. They're not trusting in their money. They trust in the Lord. You can't get more Lord. There's just one of them. But you can get more money, and he'll take care of you. Luke 6, 35 through 38. It's about giving. But love your enemies. Do what is good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. For he is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful just as your Father also is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given back to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured out into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, Jesus isn't just talking about money there. He's talking about the harder thing to give. Forgiveness, grace, mercy, love, when it's not reciprocal. Think about how many people Jesus touched while he walked this earth. Think about how many people he healed. I remember one particular story. There were 10 lepers in a town, and Jesus healed all 10. How many came back and thanked him? Just one. Did he begrudge healing the others? No, he absolutely didn't. He delighted in healing and blessing them. I'm convinced of that. But just one returned thanks. It's okay when people don't give back what you give to them as a believer because God's looking out for you. Elsewhere it says in the Word that those who give to the poor are like investing in God and He rewards you richly for that investment. He gives you great interest when you lend to the poor. He's the one who will pay it back, it says. Jesus says that what you give to God, he will give back to you in fuller measure. It means this. Are you struggling with lack of time? Give time to God. Are you struggling with lack of peace? Give peace to God. Are you wrestling to understand forgiveness and grace? Give grace and forgiveness to others. Do you wrestle with being a bitter person who uses their power to gossip and undermine and tear down the reputation of others, give praise to God and encourage others. And the more you do that, the more you will do that because God cultivates this in your life and he gives these things back exponentially. I know this makes us a little bit uncomfortable because it sounds like earning. We're not talking about salvation. We're talking about opportunity. God is very clear. When you use the opportunities I give you in the way that I want you to, I will increase your opportunities. He is looking for faithful people to give more opportunities to you, and your giving is a part of this. Your generosity honors God. Your generosity honors God. I want to go back to 2 Corinthians 9. Because of the proof provided by your ministry, they will glorify God 
for your obedient confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone. When you give, it is a special way of honoring God. When you care for the poor, it's a special way of honoring God. When you give to your church family, it's a special way of honoring God. When you develop a generous heart in your life, it's a special way of honoring God. You become like him more and more as you do these things. God is calling you to learn to be generous like Jesus. God is calling you to learn to be generous like Jesus. I've just given you a bunch of principles about generosity. The truth is this is like one twentieth of what the Bible says about generosity. It's just a little smidgen. There's so much if you study this. And this feels a little bit like disconnected truths, but the truth is the big idea here is that the Holy Spirit is wanting to produce this generous heart in you. And so the response for you is to say, yes, Lord, please make me generous. Show in my life the people that I'm being stingy to. Help me to see ways that I've been greedy. Show me ways that I haven't believed you and trusted you with my stuff, with my time, with my treasures, Lord. Help me to see that you are the one who gives me everything and that I can't outgive you, God. The heart of generosity is pursuing the generosity of God and letting, that, letting him cultivate that in you. And as you can see from what we've covered today, there's so many reasons to be generous. There's so many reasons to be generous. Now, for some of you, this is a big challenge. You're hearing this today and you're like, I'm not very generous. I'm stingy with my words. I'm stingy with my time. I'm stingy with my money. I kind of live for me a lot. Maybe you need to have a time here of confession and repentance and saying, God, you're generous. Help me to be generous like you. Some of you here have probably had seasons of generosity and you're like, I remember that. That was so fun. Maybe you need to ask God for a new season of generosity, a new time of growth in this. Some of you, this is just an encouragement. You're like, I've seen this in my life, man. Well, you've got some stories to tell. And just like Eric said, look for those Jesus stories. Maybe there's Jesus stories in your life about generosity. Maybe somebody needs to be challenged by hearing your generosity. Maybe somebody needs to be encouraged by experiencing your generosity. Generosity transforms you, but it also transforms the world around you. Let's be a church that transforms our lives and the world around us through generosity together. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray as the team comes up to lead us in a final song. Father, I just confess that sometimes it's hard for me to be generous personally. Sometimes I'm tired and I've given more than I cared to give that day of myself. And then you give more opportunities because you're faithful and good. Father, help me to be more generous when you call me to be generous. Father, we as a church are being called right now to pursue generosity. We're not taking another offering right now, Lord, because that's not what it's about. It's about giving our hearts to you. It's about trusting you. It's about following after you. It's about seeing the example of Jesus. So help these things to be in mind for us. Help us to pursue your heart. Help us to experience your love. Lord, we talked earlier about how the understanding that we have of your love is really the hard limit of our generosity. And so we pray, God, that you would help us to understand and know your love more. That's the start of it. And that that love would become an overwhelming force in our lives. So when it's time to give, we see that it's an opportunity to love. Help us, Father, to remember that we can never outgive you. Help us to give without fear, but out of obedience and love for you. Father, strengthen our church family this week. Bless them and keep them. Lord, there's going to be moments that call for more than generosity. They'll call for quiet. They'll call for grace. They'll call for faith. Strengthen them in those times to walk with you. Father, I pray for those who 
are just new to walking with you. Help us to build up their faith. Help us to encourage them in love. And Father, Father, finally, I pray for those who heard the gospel today for the first time or the 50th. I pray, God, that you would help them to understand you and put your, their faith in you. You say, Father, that faith is a gift from you. I pray, Father, that they be receiving that gift and accepting it and accepting the everlasting life that you've promised to them through Jesus Christ. I pray these things in his name. Amen.